Welcome to the Draw Shops Get Genius Podcast, where we talk to today's business influencers to pick their brain and pull out their genius. It's time to get genius. Hello, everyone. I've got a super fun interview for you today. I am speaking with Lee Karaher. She is the founder and CEO of Double Forte, a national public relations and digital media agency based in San Francisco. They work with consumer technology and wine brands, food and beverage, all kinds of fun companies. And she is a highly sought after communications expert known for her business building acumen and insights, which we talk a lot about in in the show. She's had quite an extensive history and she's super fun, so much energy. And I love all of the things that she's, she talks about. It's, it's like all about hiring millennials and how to actually retain them. And she's written books on this. She's, she is an acclaimed author and speaker, and she's a recognized expert on creating high-performing, positive intergenerational workplaces. And through her work, she shows companies how to embrace the qualities of different generations and how to recognize the significant benefits of shifting the definition of company loyalty from a long tenure of employment to a lifetime of allegiance, regardless of employment status. And please pay attention to that part in the interview because I think it's really, really important, especially for us business owners, no matter how small or big your team. We really talk about, you know, turnover, not in terms of how do you retain employees in general, but really millennials and younger employee employees who are, you know, thought to have so much more opportunity on a consistent basis and may want to switch careers every now and then. How do you retain somebody like that who's who's really, really good and brings value to your company? Lee is really active in her community, and she sits on the board of directors of trustees of KQED Public Media, San Francisco's Grace Cathedral, and Menlo College, and she's a graduate herself of Carleton College, and she has a degree, which is super cool, in medieval history, which I think is awesome, um, and very, I don't think I've heard of that before, so it's super cool. Um, and she, she travels a ton. I think she's got offices in New York and Boston. She talks about that on the show, but there's so many good things that, that we cover. And also just about being that entrepreneur who can really maybe overwork ourselves and, uh, overestimate the time that's needed to, to put in. Um, so there's, there's a lot of great takeaways here, um, links to all that she does and her books and uh, I think that you'll walk away with a lot and a new perspective on on some things. Enjoy. Hello, Lee, and welcome to the podcast. Summer, thank you so much for having me. What a great thing to be here with you. Yes, this is this is going to be fun. So um, we haven't gotten to meet in person, and I and I don't, you know, I know about all these wonderful things that you do. I'd love to hear your background and how you got into doing these things. Sure. Um, I've been in public relations and digital marketing. Well, the digital marketing part is new, but the public relations part has been my whole career, really, after college. After I graduated from Carleton College with a degree in medieval history. Oh, how cool. Um, I went right into high-tech PR, of course, as one does. Um, <laughs> and um, I started my career off in Boston, and in my late 20s, I moved to L.A., and then um, after Working at two great agencies in Los Angeles, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area to work for Sega of America 
as the vice president of communications for that billion and a half dollar company when um, the company still had hardware in the market, the Sega Genesis, Sega Saturn, Dreamcast. Wow. And um, left there when they decided to go forward with Dreamcast uh, from a business perspective. Started an agency in San Francisco for a large multinational holding company. And then in 2001, um, actually after 9-11, left that company with the full intention that I would go get another job like that Sega job. Uh, but my mom was uh, diagnosed with stage four lung cancer a few months after that. And so it was very clear that I had to have more control in yeah. my schedule than having the job that I had at Sega would have allowed me to have. So I started this company, Double Forte, in 2002, uh, 15 years ago, which is nutty. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. Flies <laughs> by. And uh, when we started the company, Facebook didn't exist. LinkedIn didn't None of these things existed. Um, and today uh, we do probably about 60% of our work is in social media um, and, the you know, through the communications lens. So that's how I got into that. And then um, I'm a published author. As you know, I've written two books um, about one. The first one's Millennials and Management, The Essential Guide to Making It Work at Work, which is really born out of my just disastrous experience of um, trying to retain millennials and then re reading everything about it and being so turned off by the negativity of everything I read that we, uh, we went to the back of the drawing board and we figured out ourselves. And then uh, some of my clients just asked me to write this book. And the second book is called The Boomerang Principle, How to Inspire Lifetime Loyalty from Your Employees When They Don't Work for You. Uh, and that came out earlier this year in 2017. That's awesome. That's so, I, I'm, I have so many questions now. I'm like sitting here <laughs> scribbling notes like, okay, okay. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Ready to answer any question you have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back to like like PR, and I'd love to hear your insight to how you know how things have evolved, the way it used to be, the way it is today, and how quickly you have to move. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, nothing has changed more in the last just you see decade, the last decade in our culture, American culture, worldwide culture than how we communicate. Yeah. The fact that everybody has in their hand more power than went to the moon, right? Than landed on the moon. We all have more power in our hands. Um, has changed everything about what we do. When I started in my career, we wrote memos. I can't remember the last time I wrote a memo, you know? I, exactly. <laughs> we used it was a newfangled thing. This is how old I am. Newfangled things to use the fax machines and we would have to fax press releases out at a certain time of the day. And that we, I worked at an agency that had multiple floors. So, and I was lowest, you know, lowest layer of that ladder ring, right? So the, those of us on the bottom, we'd be spread out through the agency on different fax machines and someone would come over the intercom with, okay, fax now, you know, it's like, yes. oh my gosh, email, oh my we gosh. were using a Wang processor. That is how old it was. Um, and that's really how communication was. It was a phone call. It was uh, a letter. It was a memo. And you faxed memos if you had a fax machine. Yeah. And uh, really around 19, um, then the pager, right? The one-way pager. Oh, yeah. Pager. And that uh, speeded reaction up, but that didn't necessarily speed up sort of the back and forth of communication that speeded up. I need to find you now. 
Um, but really, in the last 10 years with chat and social media and Slack and, I mean, uh, text messaging and everything else, there are more ways to communicate with people today than there ever have been. And how you do that, the you know, the, the format you use um, is really native to the platform. So how you text is not how you Slack. How you Slack is not how you write. How you write is not how you talk. How you talk is not how you do 144 characters. I mean, it's really um, not easy, frankly. And um, the nothing's more important, right? Nothing's right. more important. Like figuring out what you need to say, how you need to say, it, and how you need to get that message in front of the right people. Um, and for a company like ours, it's actually a really exciting time because um, it, PR used to be at the bottom of the of the barrel, and now it's risen so much higher in the marketing chain because uh, that what is that exact message and how are you going to communicate with and not to an audience um, really makes it very dynamic time to be in our industry. And it's so frequent now. Like it used to be, oh you know, you're putting out a release like how often, you know, every so often, and you're doing things that are just like so spread apart. Now it's just like. Mm -hmm. You know, every hour you see something from the celebrity you love on Instagram, you know? <laughs> well, and that's half the battle, you know, in a business. It's learning what to listen to, when to listen, what to respond to, what to wait for. Um, and particularly for, you know, com people who haven't done it before, you know, they might be responsible for, they might be, have started their own company or they might be a new leader. Um, and every, all of a sudden, you know, What's your response? I'm like, well, what just happened? I have no idea. You know, I went to the bathroom. <laughs> what happened? You yeah. Know? So, but learning how to listen um, in the social world, learning um, really what is uh, a dog whistle and really what is an issue, um, that is uh, that takes time and experience, which is what our clients really engage us for more than anything else. What type of clients are you working with? We work with three kinds of clients. We work in consumer lifestyle. Uh, category we work with food and beverage uh, sports and fitness health and wellness and accessories and gear um, and in that food and beverage we have a, a wine division which is a little different because wine works a little differently we I work love with wine. Uh, yeah well, you know they actually <laughs> don't let me anywhere near the wine clients because I don't know enough about wine they're like Lee you I spit you spit I sip you sip I swirl you swirl I'm like okay I got it um, <laughs> A technology and innovation um, division, and we work with companies in AR, VR, video games, entertainment, and apps for people. Not a lot of enterprise work, um, and we have some professional services work as well. So, it's three very different buckets of work that keep us, um, I think, keep us more on our toes than just doing one thing and keep us very interested in the work at hand. Yeah. What do you, what is it that you do, you, your, you and your team do to make sure that you're staying current on the new technologies, new social platforms and, and all of that? Oh gosh. Well, we do have a digital team whose job is to uh, sort of be out there way ahead um, on the bug splat land, right? So right. You want, it's awesome. That's also another thing, right? When do you adopt something? Or, yeah. Or is it a lot of energy about something that may or may not uh, come to fruition. And, you know, my company is headquartered in San Francisco. We have an office in New York, L.A., and Boston. 
Um, but in San Francisco, it's all about that that startup, the startup, the startup, right? We hear it all the time. And I'm like, well, you know, I've seen the 19 of those in the last three weeks. <laughs> yes. But, you know, look, critical mass um, in the audiences that we care about. So, for instance, in Food and Bev, um, Instagram is so important in Food and Bev. Uh, Snapchat is not as important. Um Facebook is always important. Um, media and influencers um, getting reviews of food and star ratings are super, super important in uh, food and bev. Not so as important in um, in like the Instagram is not so important in other categories in the consumer lifestyle division. But understanding, you know, the kinds of industries we work in, where's the audience we need, you know, where's the audience we're trying to reach and how can we be there? Because um, if you're not where the audience is, you're really not communicating to anybody important. Right. Okay. So I'm really curious about this and, and you wrote a book about it. So I think we're going to, we're going to have a good conversation here. So for some of us, um, I'm, I'm going to call us experienced entrepreneurs that uh, <laughs> may not be 20, may not be, you know, <laughs> um, we're going to be we're going to be working with millennials. We're going to be working with with younger people, which which is great. It can also be You're challenging. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's exciting. It's awesome. They're also super excited, and they're dreaming super big. So how yep. do you actually? How do you find them, and then how do you keep them? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think. Um... First, you have to think about what your culture, you know, uh, a millennial, if you can create a culture that a millennial will thrive in, boomers and Xers will also thrive. The reverse is not necessarily true. Okay. So, um, the, my first book I wrote really after failing miserably at, we, we, you know, recruiting was no problem. Keeping them in the house was a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> we had hired uh, uh, six millennials within eight weeks and they were all gone within three months. And I had never had a hundred percent failure in recruiting in my entire career, uh, I'd had at SIG, I had over 700 people at my last firm. I had over 650 people. I mean, I had a lot of people. Um, and here in my little bitty agency of 40 people, I couldn't keep six people here. And it was a body blow, you know, really was a body blow. And, um, one person could be their problem, but six people had to be us. Yeah. Um, so we sort of looked at that and I interviewed and I read everything. Like I said, it was so, so negative. They're entitled. They're babies. They can't work. I mean, oh my gosh, an entire 80 million people cannot be entitled. Right. Saying, right e now. Exactly. Um, statistically impossible. Right. Um, so what we looked at was our culture of, and sort of how we work together. And, uh, what I found when in my own research, um, was that uh, we were very well set up for boomers and Xers uh, in terms of their expectations, what how they uh, came into the workplace, what their expectations, what their knowledge, what their experience was, but we were not anywhere near set up <laughs> for the process of um, bringing on and and, and um, enrolling a millennial in our work. And what we found was that we were using too many shortcuts, that we were not providing any context, that we had the idea that you do it just because I said so, because that's how I worked, you know? <laughs> yeah. And just because I said so does not work with this generation or the generation behind it, Gen Z. Um, we also found that um, 
we weren't explaining enough why the work mattered. Like, what's the big goal, right? And we weren't explaining enough each individual role so people understood how important they were to the team. When we peel the onion on that, we we uh, fix some things here. So now we start uh, with uh, explaining why we exist, right? Yeah. We exist to help good companies do great things in their categories, period, right? And, and how do we do that? We do that by helping those great companies communicate with the people that matter to them. So that's what we do. We do it every day. We only work with companies we like, and uh, we only work in categories we have a lot of passion for. So that helps differentiate us, number one. Number two is everybody has a role. So you, no matter where you are on the ladder, um, and millennials don't like a ladder, but wherever you are on the lattice, I guess is a better way of saying it, you're important. You know, There isn't probably a person in this country who is hired not to do a job that matters. Right. People don't do that. You know, we're a capitalist country. People don't hire people just to hire them. Right. They hire them because there's a job to do. And if you don't do your job, someone else has to pick up the 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 slack. But we don't do a good job as a culture explaining that, right? Um, that if you're low man on the totem pole, low woman on the totem pole, yes, actually filling the water glasses is important because everyone isn't hydrated, then they can't do their work. If they can't do their work, you don't have a job. I mean, right. just even that sort of simple stuff. And then also, um, I learned a lot about the power of appreciation. And this is a generation that has grown up with lots and lots of stickers, lots and lots of trophies, lots and lots of not ever losing a soccer game. And um, (laughs) also grade inflation, the average grade has inflated almost a full point in the last 15 years, which is when millennials went to college and since then. And so they've had a, a lot of positive reinforcement and appreciation, and you're great, and you can do anything you want. But I haven't had uh, that is not the that's not a boomer work experience, right? right. <laughs> so um, I had to learn how to say, and I, I say it in my personal life, please and thank you. But I was definitely not saying it in my work life, and I learned how to uh, demonstrate appreciation for the people around me, and that changed everything. That changed everything with the 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 context and the role uh, description. And when um, the data is that uh, those teams and individuals who feel well appreciated outperform those that don't by about 30%. Well, 30% goes right to the bottom line. Yeah. 30% is profit. And and what I've come to understand is most most waste in business is about communication (laughs) and is about people grinding on their on their own condition, right? Yeah. Because if you're grinding on the fact that Summer does not appreciate the fact that I showed up 10 minutes early today and I was well prepared and I did my job, you're grinding on it. And if you're grinding on it, you're not being efficient. If you're not being efficient, you're wasteful. If you're not, if you're wasteful, you're losing money. And it is not, although it is, as it were, a nice place to work and people say that, you guys are such nice people. We have a very high standard of work and yeah. we call each other on it. Um, but if we, what I know, uh, having lived through it, is if we if we aren't a good place of work with a high high standard of work, then we don't have a sustainable business model. So those things together are what sort of created a culture where millennials could really thrive. And by definition, then you know who doesn't want to know how important they are? Who doesn't want to be appreciated? Who exactly. doesn't want to really understand why they're coming to work every day? Everybody does. We just never talked about it. And I, I believe that millennials don't want anything different than boomers or Xers. They just uh, 
they just talk about it day one. They don't wait till they're 40. Yeah. <laughs> day 20, you know, day two, I'm leaving for yoga. <laughs> well, yoga is at one and we have a meeting. So maybe you're not leaving for yoga at one, but you can probably leave for yoga by six. Okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What anyway. are the ways that you show appreciation? Yeah. So um, a few ways. One is um, we practice appreciation here. And in my book, I talk about, I show people how to uh, practice appreciation. So we at the we have a staff meeting every week, and um, when I when I realized this information, I uh, this this the the power of appreciation. I made everybody practice this sixteen weeks in a row. They hated me. <laughs> but at the end of every staff meeting, we chose three people, and you had to random, you know, just go up to somebody and tell them why you appreciated them. Not because they had nice shoes or you liked their hair, but, you know, I appreciate that you always have a smile in the office or I appreciate, you know, you go around at the end of every day and you pick up all the dirty dishes. I really appreciate that. Or I appreciate that you saw a typo on my um, document and you came and told me those kinds of where people had to demonstrate that they were paying attention to other people and the, and what those efforts those other people were making. So we practiced that 16 weeks in a row. And um, the first few weeks was really awkward. Um, and now <laughs> it is second nature, right? So now we maybe do it once a month in a staff meeting, maybe. Uh, so that's one way. Another way is please and thank you throughout the day. Uh, you can change the whole dynamic of your group by just saying please and thank you. And it sounds really dumb. I get how dumb it sounds, but I challenge anyone who thinks it's stupid to try it for a week. And you'll notice a dramatic difference in the demeanor of your team. Another way to do it is to um, have um, uh, wait, times where you can appreciate wins and losses and, and learnings and not just talk about the wins like, oh, Michelle did a great job this week. Everyone, I want you to know about this, this, this. But also appreciate the learnings. I want you to tell you about this tough situation Michelle was in last week. You know, it didn't go the way she thought it was going to go. But here's what we here's what she learned about it, and here's she's going to share her learning, um, so that uh, you have the benefit of the hard experience as well. So you just have to make time for it, and when you make time for it, it pays back dividends over and over and over again. Oh, absolutely! I love those. Those are those are great tips. So let's talk about the other book, the boom, sure. the boomerang principles, and and give us kind of the the scope of that. So that book came out of actually talking about my first book, right? Yeah. <laughs> talking about my first book, and I would have all these people wanting to talk to me about millennials and how terrible they were. And they're just <laughs> job hoppers, and they leave so quickly. I'm not going to put any time into them because they're dead to me when they leave. And I just was like, no, you're thinking about it all wrong. Yeah. And um, so I... You know, my frame of reference is really when I was um, running this larger company uh, in 1999, 2000, 2001. And that was when Gen Xers, there weren't enough Gen Xers in San Francisco to do the job. So if you had a pulse, you got a job. And my office was a revolving door. And people would come in, I got another offer, and I would have to offer them 20% more oh, so wow. they would stay. Yeah. And that was dictated. You know, they're like, don't lose any bodies, Lee. You know, reserve this much money so you can offer, counter offer. And everybody knew if they walked into my office, they would get a counter. Well, it's exhausting. It's yes. exhausting. And uh, one day, I just went, I'm not doing it anymore. I don't care if I got in trouble. I always got in trouble. It was, the trouble was nothing new to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I decided no more countering. Why are we spending all this time with people? You know, we spend this time and this money with people who are actively looking for other jobs. Like, what am I doing that for? 
because uh, I was supposed to. Um, and I didn't even have time to tell my team, my my leadership team, that I had made this decision um, when someone walked into my office and they said, Leah, I got another job. And instead of saying, and here's 20%, I said, good luck. <laughs> and this person was so shocked. They're like, <laughs> they were like, what no, I want to counter. counter. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not countering. Tell me where you're going. And wait, you're not going to counter. You countered Joe last week. I'm like, yeah, but I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. He goes, but, but I don't want to leave. And I said, you shouldn't have looked for a job then. Yeah. So, um, I didn't counter. He was very upset. Uh, but what I said when, uh, he was stormed out of the office I said, well, you know what? You're going to leave that job pretty soon because that's a terrible place to be. I probably didn't say it that way. But I said, you know, when you're ready to leave that company, you call me and I hope that there's a job here for you. Uh, which pissed him off even more because yeah. he wasn't expecting that either. <laughs> <laughs> and But what I learned was two things. One is uh, when I stopped countering, people stopped leaving. So that was good learning. Yeah. And when I told people that I expected them to leave. So from that moment on, every time someone came into the company, I'd meet with them. I would meet with them and I would say, and I do this now today in my own company. I meet with everybody who joins us in their first week and I say, welcome. I also say, I know you're going to leave here. I hope you come back. Um, and I hope this is the best place. You're so proud of being a double forte that on your resume, it sticks out. We focus on that. And that you'll want to return here after you leave. And they sort of look at me like, you're talking about me leaving on my first week. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I know you're going to leave. When you hire someone, you know they're going to leave. Yeah. So let's just get that out of the way, right? So the whole principle, the boomerang principle is those companies that encourage and allow their former employees to return to them outperform those that don't. And um, it is uh, on on many levels that this is true. One, um, more than half companies in this country until last year had written or, or verbal policies against rehiring people. So in a competitive job market, and you're always competing for the top market, no matter if it's a bad, a down market or an up market, you always want the best people. So you're always in competition for the top 20, 25% employee. Yeah. No matter what, right? Um, so if you have said anyone who was here before who has left, they abandoned me and they're not loyal and they're dead to me, you have at least halved your uh, possible job applicant pool. And you already know that you like this person. You already know that they fit into your company. You already know that they already, you know, they fit, you know, they do did a good job, assuming they did. Right. Right. So instead, why not, why not think about it as they went off, they learned something new, they will return, they will be more valuable to me the second time around than the first time around because right. they'll be able to be super productive super quickly. Um, this, uh, when I talk about it, some people are like, oh, of course, why didn't I think of that? And other people are like, absolutely not, I'll never do that. And when people say absolutely not, I'll never do that, I counsel them that... Uh, you know, the problem with that frame of reference with the millennial generation is that millennials believe they'll have four to eight different careers in their lifetime. They've been counseled not to stay in a job more than four or five years because their parents got flat footed, got caught flat footed in 2000, 2008, 2009. 
and they couldn't find work. There are still people out of work uh, from that time. Yeah. And uh, their parents said, don't get stale. Don't stay in a job forever. A company will not carry you because they're right. A company will not carry somebody. Right. right? That's not the job of the company. So millennials come into the workplace, uh, one, with the expectation that they're not going to do the same thing for their whole career. Two, that they should not stay in a job more than four or five years. So uh, that is the reality. So if you are not doing everything you can, one, to make help that millennial be as productive as possible day one, which means a lot of training and a culture that embraces them, then you're, first of all, you're shortening their tenure with you, right? Yeah. You're like, if, because millennial, if you're not going to invest in them, they're out the door. Yeah, exactly. Even in a down market, right? Even in a down market. Because there's places for them to get refuge. 37% of working millennials still live at home. So uh, it's just a reality. And then if you layer in the fact that a place to return to is a place that's hard to leave. And if you can just keep hold of a millennial one extra year than what they planned, you've saved yourself about $100,000. Well, Again, it's money. Yeah. It's profit. And you have a better place to work, too. Again, it only works if you have a high standard of work. I'm not advocating for, oh, everybody can come back. Absolutely not. No, you have exactly. to be boomerang eligible, right? Jerks don't get to come back ever. People who are stupid on their way out, there better be some serious groveling on the way back in. If, they, <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you let them in. I have people in my company who are not boomerang eligible. They're never coming back no matter what. Yeah. Because of how they treated people on the way out. It's not very many people. How how has it affected clients? Because, you know, it especially, you know, in, in like the agency life, there's clients working closely with, with one member of your team. And if that person then leaves and maybe it's, you know, or if that position is changing frequently, have you seen how that affects the your your client loyalty? Absolutely. Well, you know, I think our clients um our, client, our average client in uh, tenure for non-startups is uh, five and a half years, which is three years longer than most people in San Francisco. Yeah. And average employee tenure for people under 30 is four and a half years, which is three years more than San Francisco normal. <laughs> right. Wow. So and our, our clients understand uh, what turnover is. They also understand longevity of relationship. Um, and we... Never let anyone go alone. So we have a very high team-oriented culture here. No one ever, you know, we, we use aliases instead of individual emails. Um, and so we're always a heavy CC culture so that um, a client, it, you know, someone could be sick and the work keeps going because someone picked it up kind of thing. Right. So when you can keep people longer, you can keep clients longer because clients hate the idea that they are paying oh, yeah. to you training new people. Yes. I think clients understand normal churn, normal churn, three, four percent, you know, that's normal, you know, that's low. That's definitely low in San Francisco. But, you know, if you can, if an agency can deliver lower churn than the company they're serving, you won't have a problem. Right. It's when your agency is having higher churn than your company that there is a lot of friction. Let's talk about technology and how how quickly do you see your company because in, and especially in a, in a business like yours, I mean all businesses, but especially with yours with communication. I mean, really, if you think about 
technology and how it has sped up so many things for people. A lot of it, it comes to communication, like we were talking about earlier, um, you know, and just in, in building relationships in um, getting news out there, everything. I mean, like I remember when I was working at a talent agency and we would package you know, people together for movies. Here are the actors that we think could be in this movie and you're putting it in an envelope with a letter and then sending it out in the mail. And the little mail guy comes out around, you know, like four times a day, picking up all those things. And then it's like, you know, you you check in like weeks later to see if they got it, if they had time to review. Now, like everything is just digital submissions and, you know, you do, the auditions are just, you know, on camera, you know, you can go in on camera, but it's just like, send it in. You know, I don't care if you're in Asia right now. But it's right. just, you know, it's crazy. How how quickly are, are you seeing your business implementing new technologies? How often? Well, um, we, some of our clients dictate what technologies we use, right? So we don't have one way of doing things. Our goal as an agency is to map to each client and then help them improve. So some clients are on SharePoint. Oh my God, just killed me. Other clients are on <laughs> Trello. Other clients are on Asana. Uh, you know, so we are actually pretty adept at all of those technologies from either um, uh, document management or project management because our clients are already on things. And some clients um, are not and we bring them a bit, you know, we based on their configuration we have a lot of experience and okay here's how you guys can work better together you know sometimes it's just getting on google docs yeah other times it's full trello implementations and all that kind of stuff so um in terms so in terms of that you know just workflow stuff um our clients sometimes dictate what we have to be adept at right and that is a bit of a challenge if you're on more than one team and one's on trello one's on google docs one's on sharepoint um, sort of going in and out. But I really believe long-term, we have to be really technology fluid on this because things change so much. In terms of adapting things for my own company, um, we're a 15-year-old company, so we're on Outlook, um, and uh, Outlook is still the most robust email provider, uh, which we require, and it also has better security than other offer offer you know, offerings in their, in the marketplace. And uh, some of our technology clients demand, um, won't use other, you know, not everybody uses everything if they're worried about security. So we have to be pretty flexible on that. Um, In terms of communication tools, you know, um, we have an appy hour once a month where we're learning new apps and that's uh, awesome. The digital teams, the digital teams job is to bring new apps to the to everybody's um, you know, attention and we have to use them for a while and you know sometimes they stick and sometimes you know we find out pretty quickly what doesn't stick yeah right so particularly in um, there are a lot of apps that are you know that help you augment photography uh, for social media and we try them all yeah. and some are much better than the others yeah. right so <laughs> but that's how we do it that's how we do it and still we feel you know, that's um, we almost got caught that footed a few years ago when we weren't adapting fast enough. We weren't in the thing about adaptation, particularly in the one in the communication business and then two in the client service business is if you are not relevant, 
you do not have a business. Yeah. And today, relevance is not just what you know how to do, but it's how you do it. Right. And it's what technologies you use and how fast you can learn them and be adept at them and also how judiciously you can use them. You know, you see it all the time. Reply all. Well, you know, it doesn't take too many replies all to lessen your importance to a client um, and, you know, sort of drop the confidence they have in you. So not only is I learning it like the actual ins and outs of it, but it's actually learning the the gestalt of each platform is so, so important. Yeah, it's it. And it's about you learn when something is really good, when you have that little bit of addiction to it, when you get really excited yeah. to use it again and it's simple Absolutely. and intuitive. Yeah. Yeah. So you do so many things. You're, I know you're really active in your community. You sit on the board of directors for uh, a few different businesses, yeah. companies, schools. Um, and obviously, you, you've you been running uh, this business for, like you said, 15 years now. What is it that you do for yourself that keeps you whole and present and just good? <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you, I just uh, restarted uh, horseback riding. Which was something I wanted to do in 2008, literally had planned to do it on September 14th, 2008. And then the market, you know, told me something different on September 15th, 2008. Yeah. And I realized, I'm like, oh, we survived that. I can probably do that now. So I'm actually riding um, a few hours a week now, which is the time when I just don't, I have to pay attention to the horse, right? Right. can't think about anything else but me and the horse. And that is, a tr- for me, a tremendous gift um, of, of focus on something that is not work-related or, or family-related or board-related or anything like that. So I do that, um, and I read. I love to read. And, um, and my family are big about spending time together. So we... Our, my kids are... One's in college and one's in high school, so it's sort of hard during the week, but on the weekends we do... At least when we're at our home, we do a lot of hiking together. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. And I love for people to hear that you, you do get to make time for all those things that you love you know, and that are not related and, to work. Um, I think um, what I learned the hard way, um, and one of the things about my, my books are things I learned the hard way. You know, yeah. I just, If I can help anybody just not go through the pain that I went through to figure things out, I want to tell people that. But what I definitely learned the hard way is if you can't take care of yourself, you cannot take care of your company. Yeah. And uh, when I'm healthier, the, the company's healthier, period. And I have so much evidence of that that um, I don't think anyone could talk me out of that one. That is the hardest lesson. And I think it's the lesson that people probably hear a lot but still can't when it's yourself. It's kind of like one of those lessons you have to learn the hard way. <laughs> uh, well, I had, a, uh, I had been very sick over time and... Uh, but, you know, you just power through, right? I just, I had anemia and um, I was drinking 20 servings of spinach a day, which is abnormal. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I was just like, oh, I can keep my iron level up by just adding another serving, right? And I finally, uh, my doctor's like, wait, come on, right? And so um, I had this surgery and I was out for six weeks, which was the longest time, period of time I'd been out while working uh, as an adult. And um, at three weeks, I felt so great. I was like, oh, Summer, I was like, I'm going to go say hi to people. It's going to yeah. be great. 
And I went into the bathroom to change. I look at myself and I, oh my gosh, I was like, that can't be me. I look like a meth addict. My hair is all like, oh my I mean, gosh. everything you think about it, right? Yeah, yeah. My t-shirt was on inside out and backwards. It stains everywhere. I've been pulling my pants up all morning and I realized they were on inside out and I was just pulling them by the strands of the cotton, oh. old, you know? I'm like, I can't go in like this. Oh my gosh. And I realized, um, and my doctor had said to me, Lee, we didn't know how sick you were because you powered through things. And this is true for most entrepreneurs. Yes. We just power through. You know, men, women, doesn't really make a difference. We just power through. And uh, she goes, we had no idea how sick you were. You didn't present like someone that was that sick. And um, at three weeks when I felt so awesome and I really wasn't is when it really hit me. It's wow. like, wow, all the things I could have done better if I'd only take care of myself. Yeah. Like I showed up. So um, if if you hear that and you're like, no, she's exaggerating. Please. No, I'm not exaggerating. My doctor's like, I don't know how you're alive. They wow. really didn't understand how I was not like just you know, crawling my way to work every day. And um, it's just, you know, you don't have to live that way. You don't. We do not have to live that way. We shouldn't live that way. And if the business is all about you, uh, you should find a new job. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen, I've seen it too many times and it's, it's not a, it's not this great. I think some people may think it's this um, like medal of honor that you wear, that you work yourself to the bone. You know what I mean? You're just like, and just going at it so hard and pushing through and pushing through. And it's, it's not, it's not something to be, you know, admired for. We were so much stronger. When I got back, I hired a, here's what I did summer. I got back and I realized there are great things that, and so my company, I didn't, I didn't, I made three phone calls. I'm alive the day after the surgery. The, on the third, that third week, I, I I called in the morning and told my number two, I'm like, I'm coming in. And then I called her an hour later, said, I'm not coming in. Yeah. <laughs> and then I called um, like three days before I was coming back. And I decided to only come back half time, not because just so, so the company could actually have a space without me, with me, but not fully me. Yeah. And I said, here's what I need. I need a list of everything that's gone so well without me in the company for the last six weeks. And I need one thing that you've missed. Just one. I got I to gotta get one. Yeah. And they made a list. There's these six people. They made a list of everything that they learned without me, everything that they did, everything they were happy to have had without me. And it was really telling, right? And they were a little nervous to tell me that they had enjoyed some things without me. But, you know, I said to them, I said, we get nowhere without each other. You know, I'm not going to carry this ball anymore. I can't work myself to the ground like I just did for the last couple of years. Right. And uh, we're going to get better because of this. Um, and we have definitely, you know, from there is where we found our growth. From there is where we found, you know, we expanded into other markets and we um, upped our game and we did all these other things that we weren't doing because we were just like, oh, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. But it was me getting out of the game. Uh, being forced out of the game because I was sick, uh, to, that jolted us to you know this relevant position. So um, you don't have to get sick to be relevant. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You don't have to let it get to that point. <laughs> you don't have to drink twenty servings of spinach a day. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway. Well, I love it, and I love I love that you're horseback riding. That's so cool. Like you said, you just get to focus on the on the one. One thing, yeah, the horse. Focused, the horse, man. Who yeah. knows what's going to happen? So. Yeah. And I hadn't been on a horse in you know twenty years. So the first couple of times, I was like, I hope I can walk. <laughs> but um, 
my goal is to get on the drill team and uh, by the end, by this time next year. So I'm, I've already graduated into, into tougher and tougher classes with tougher and tougher horses. So I'm on my way to that. Love it. Well, I would love, I'd love to send our, our listeners to your website and, and how they can get your books too. Absolutely. The best place to find me is at leecarraher.com, L-E-E-C-A-R-A-H-E-R.com. And you can find my agency, my books, um, and I blog there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at at leecarraher. Um, and I talk about this stuff all the time. Perfect. Oh, this is awesome. Well, thank you so much. You're, I'm, I'm impressed with all you're doing. I love it. And keep doing it. Thank you so much, Summers. What a joy to be with you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Get Genius. You can learn more about The Draw Shop at www.thedrawshop.com, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Your home for kick-butt custom whiteboard marketing videos. Your ideas come to life. Thanks for listening. Please share, comment, and make any suggestions for future genius guests.